Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. My next guest from Monash Gallery of Art, gallery director Anushka Fizakli joins us to talk about the Bonus Photography Prize 2020, which, to give it its full name, Anushka, it's the William and Winifred Bonus Prize. Correct. What is this a prize for, and who were William and Winifred Bonus? The Bonus Photography Prize is actually now in its 15th year, so it's incredibly exciting to be able to showcase the best of Australian photography and to celebrate photographic practice. William and Winifred were actually the parents of Bill Bonus, and Bill was the chair of MGA's board when the prize was first created over 15 years ago now. So it was really just a celebration of the best of Australian photography. And I think over the years you've sort of seen this shift in photographic practice and it really does celebrate that shift. You know, you've got such a diversity of makers out there and most engage with photography in some way and it's an ability to sort of look at that across the nation. Talk to us about how photographic practice has shifted over those 15 years and and what it looks like now because certainly in the 15 years or so that I've been doing this show I've seen a number of trends come and go in terms of the manipulation of of negatives, the manipulation of images, the return of more traditional practices, and it, these kind of th- things ebb and flow. So what is the state of photographic art like at the moment? I think that's absolutely true. You know, there's been an explosion of, I guess, adopting and adapting to technology. I mean, artists are always experimenting. You know, they create using the medium that best suits them to create, you know, and if there's something new out there, you know, the introduction of colour photography, the change in how people can actually, the size of the work people can print, the paper they can print on, the materials they can print on, you know, we've seen a real adoption, for example, of large-scale wallpaper work and a wallpaper is a photographic thing if uh, it's just on a huge scale. So there's all these adopting and adapting to the new tech as things change. And I think at the same time as we have the ability to utilise manipulative software, you know, like Photoshop, you also have the complete opposite often happening. And artists are sort of looking at the way to explore the medium using often an older type of technique that perhaps fell out of vogue and they begin to embed that back into their practice. But then you find what's really exciting, even the integration of really new technology with the really old tech because photography really was a scientific invention. So science has always been at the back of it. And I think you've got a work in the bonus prize this year which utilises 3D and they sort of create a 3D model and then photograph it and then take it back into the dark room and make a traditional analog print, silver gelatin print. And so you've got all this melding and molding of tech. And so again, you're pushing the boundaries. And I think what's super exciting to always see is what artists are doing right now. You know, the bonus prize sort of always captures exactly what is going on. 
in photographic practice now because every work needs to be produced within the last year. So you really do get that right guise of what's going on. And I think it's, it's exciting every single year to see what artists are now doing as they respond to society. And I think you've got those two things happening. One of the things, obviously, that they'd be responding to this year is they're not just ideas around what's in vogue and what's now possible with photographic practice, but clearly artists will be responding to the environment and the circumstances that so many of us have been living through for uh, the past many months, particularly here in Melbourne, but elsewhere around the country as well. How has the pandemic and the idea of living through lockdown impacted on some of the works that have been selected as finalists for the the bonus prize this year. I understand, for example, that Tamara Dean, who normally would photograph other people, has given the environment and the circumstances that she's used herself as a model instead this year. Yeah, I think it's, it's fascinating. And when I was definitely looking through the work, you can see a post and pre-pandemic lens. And the same with the bushfires. There was absolutely the artist utilising or exploring particular things and then it hit the bushfires. And that ravaged our country and changed the environment and and how we existed at that time. It was incredibly destructive bushfire, but it was incredibly scary. You know, those types of moments really make you think differently. And then we had also the Black Lives Matter movement, Me Too movement, and then we hit the pandemic. So it was incredibly intense moment in our shared history when just this confluence of events, artists were just beginning to respond to them. And artists also have integrated, not just one response. So some works are solely about the Black Lives Matter or solely about the impact of COVID on them and their practice, especially during lockdown, but also ones that intertwine. So maybe it was the bushfires, but also the impact of Black Lives Matter when the protests were on. So I think there's this real push and pull around what the artists are exploring. And absolutely, you know, Coming inside and making and not being able to go outside for artists who perhaps a part of their practice might be nature. It could be talking or touching other people. It could be anything. And I think to bring that back into what is often a domestic interior is obviously going to impact that artist's reference to the world. So I think it's absolutely transformed a lot of artists' practice because they had to bring it internalised a little bit more. But again, they also have responded to what's going on in the world and especially other people. Now, as we're talking, if people want to get a sense of the array and the style and the ideas being explored by photographers in the images selected for the Bonus Prize 2020, people can jump online, www.mga.org.au and click through to the Bonus Prize finalists. I mean, Ponch Hawks, for example, her work, which is entitled Isolation, husband, it really does capture and encapsulate the sense of introspection and frustration and perhaps boredom that some of us felt during lockdown. And then conversely, you've got works like Louise Faulkner's really striking piece, Xanthorea, which I've probably mispronounced, which I think is the name of a, of a plant, which is looking at the scarring and the colour and, and what's left after, after the bushfires, for example. So there are these, as you say, quite literal depictions of the world. But then other works which 
are going in completely different directions, some of which are responding to very different kind of stimulus. There's the portrait shot by Matteo Delvira and Michael Weatherall, for example. The bridge, which is a, a collaboration looking at bodies of water, and in this instance, a, a young man and a dog within that body of water. So really different environments, different themes, different ideas, some very traditional practices and some very bold. But as you say, collectively, a, a snapshot of artists' ideas and concerns in 2020. Absolutely, and I think those moments, I think if you look at even Zoe Arnott, who has depicted her grandfather, who turned 99 during COVID, and they celebrated when he's behind, I guess, bars of the retirement village. And you've got that dislocation between society, and I think, you know, even if it is an artist reflecting and responding to their own family situation, it has way more broader implications because artists are part of the world. And artists have families and they have experiences and they work and they do everything. You know, they are part of it and they're responding and reflecting and often shaping society. So it's those types of moments where this is, I guess, what the bonus prize often does is capture those moments. I mean, if you think about a number of years ago, Frida Ashbar won the bonus photography prize with her portrait of Baruj Brashani, who is a migrant refugee. And that sort of was... I guess, what was happening at that moment. And I think the Bonas Prize constantly is part of that dialogue with the broader community about things that are going on. And I think these works really do capture diversity of experience, but also of medium. And I think it's that amazing confluence of events that creates these works that speaks to both what's going on, but also in a way, visually, that's incredibly interesting to engage with. And I think it's that sort of balance that's exciting in these works. All of the finalists, and I believe it's, what, 60 contemporary works selected from over a 1,000 entries, the finalists are competing for a $30,000 prize. There's also a $5,000 People's Choice Award, and these will be announced in January. Now, given the circumstances here in Melbourne, Monash Gallery of Art, I understand, is not currently open, so the exhibition is showing online. Are you hoping that perhaps towards the end of this month or by December that Monash Gallery of Art will be able to physically reopen to the public so that people can see these works on site rather than online. Absolutely. I think we're all so eager to get back and be with each other (laughs) and to connect with each other through art. We're hopefully going to start installing on Monday and be able to be open in the last stage of the state government's loosening of the restrictions. And so we're anticipating that day is probably late November, early December. But, you know, your your guess is as good as mine. But I think this year, especially, you know, we made so many changes to the Bonus Photography Prize to enable it to occur and also to respond and reflect what, you know, an artist situation is. You know, we're all in the same boat in Melbourne trying to get everything together. But the artists have been incredible. And, yeah, we hope to install next week and be open fairly soon. So it is online, but we hope to physically open very soon. You were a member of the judging panel this year who selected the finalists. Have the judges already made a decision as to who the overall winner is? And is that something that you're sitting on for a couple of months? Or will you and the judges reconvene in January, for example, to choose the actual winner of the 2020 Bonus Photography Prize? No, we have not selected. So your guess is as good as mine. So we also have a People's Choice Award, which will be open when we open physically. And we 
encourage everyone to vote in the People's Choice Award as well, where the artist wins $5,000. But we will reconvene, both Sean Lakin, Jennifer Hall and myself will reconvene in January when we can all travel and be in the same room together because I think the bonus prize is judged physically the actual winner is judged with the work in front of you because it really does change. You know, the scale, the texture, the intensity of the work absolutely changes when you're in front of it. And I think that's the power of the medium. Photography is not about something on a screen. It's actually about a thing in front of you. A photograph is a physical object often. So it's so important to be able to see that work in front of you as you respond to it. And absolutely, as you say, given the the scale that some of the works have represented, looking at them on screen gives you an impression of the work, but seeing them in the gallery itself with your own eyes rather than mediated through your phone, your laptop, uh, your desktop screen, whatever it may be, definitely once Monash Gallery of Art has reopened, I definitely encourage people to go and visit the Bonus Photography Prize, which is showing until the 17th of February with the award announcements being made in January. Monash Gallery of Art, located at 860 Ferntree Gully Road in Wheelers Hill, currently closed because of COVID-19, but hopefully opening by the end of the month. You can jump online www.mga.org.au to look at the finalists and learn more about the Bonus Photography Prize 2020, now in its 15th year. I've been chatting with the Director of the Monash Gallery of Art, Anushka Fizakli. Anushka, thank you so much for joining us and good Good luck for the reopening once it happens. I know that venues across the city and across the state are eagerly looking forward to that opportunity. Yes, we all cannot wait. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Absolute pleasure. All the best. Jess Bram is the director of the Jewish Museum of Australia and joins us to talk about a new pop-up artwork that you may have seen if you've been walking through Birurung Ma, getting some exercise and some fresh air and a change of scenery. Jess, a very good morning to you and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Richard. This work that has appeared in Birurung Ma, it's called Sukkah, created by Zahava Ellenberg. It's a temporary work. How are you describing it? Is it a temporary artwork? Is it a pop-up installation? Is it, a, is it a building or is it a combination of the three? I would love to use all those three phrases. They're perfectly descriptive of what it is. It's also, as well as all of them, a site-specific sculpture. We're thinking of it, yes, as a temporary installation, as an addition to the landscape. It's an artwork. It's a design piece. The Hover beautifully calls it almost like a, a piece of jewellery the other day because of, because of the materiality of it and when the sun catches the polycarbonate pieces, it literally glistens there on the grass in Burrong Mass. So it's all of those things, I guess. The fact that it can be so many things at once is in itself an intriguing concept. It reminds us that trying to define anyone or anything is a, is a tricky concept because if it's a person, everybody has different aspects of, of themselves that make up the whole. This artwork is the same. It can be many things simultaneously. Absolutely. And I think for us at the museum, that's part of the excitement and the dynamism of a commission like this and working with someone like Zahava, who is such a leading name in, in the field in terms of design and architecture, but really comes very closely to, to some of the values that we hold very dear at the Jewish Museum that sit across curiosity and playfulness. 
and the notion of, of our visitors and our audience being gifted something from us that feels exploratory, something something for them to discover without us being too didactic in terms of a description. And this project certainly speaks to all of those. It was originally going to be installed in Birurungma, I understand, in early October, but was delayed because it of was. lockdown. It was, and really, if ever a symbol, I think, of many of the casualties of this year, though though perhaps not nearly as devastating as some of the others, but this very much representative of of a number of projects that certainly exist in the cultural and arts sector that were going to be brought to life any time from March through June, through October, and COVID restrictions certainly were immediate and difficult for us. The project was to align with the Jewish Festival of Sukkot, and the Jewish Festival of Sukkot has a very long-held tradition of building structures like these, temporary structures in Hebrew, hence the name Sukkah, and they're seen as booths that come to life or huts that are often built either in community spaces or family spaces or residential back gardens. And they speak to the opportunity to gather together, to rejoice family, friends and neighbours. So the fact that this came to life against the backdrop of the pandemic, and we know that connection and coming together was made so difficult, ever more a triumph, I think, once we were actually able to install it on the grass at Birurangma as soon as restrictions were allowed. The idea of it being a place for gathering is so poignant at the moment as well, given that for many of us until recently, it has been impossible to gather with our loved ones, with friends, with family, unless perhaps it was done outdoors under safe, socially distant circumstances. So the idea of this temporary shelter, installation, artwork being a place to represent that coming together, it makes it, I think, a very potent and very timely artwork. Indeed. We couldn't agree more and I think in many ways from our side it was a really strong driver for us. The idea came to life early this year and we were so excited by it and set our sights ambitiously with a short time scale and again the benefit of working with someone like Zahava who is just an absolute can-do collaborator, the very best kind of collaborator and then exactly as you say once you add in the ingredients of what came to pass in Melbourne's second lockdown this project had even more of an impetus for us because we knew that when we were going to be able to gift it to the city it was going to be at a time when coming together all of a sudden felt possible again and many months later of being struck by this notion of being together but apart this was the first step for us as a museum and in fact our museum is still closed so the poignancy is even stronger again because we've been able to present soccer at a time when we can't yet welcome visitors back into our physical spaces in St Kilda so the ability to welcome people to something that has the flavour and the meaning and the sensibility of the Jewish Museum not on our own premises but somewhere else where we're able to facilitate a coming together. It's hugely exciting. The work itself, uh, as we said, it's located at Birurung Ma, I believe on the grassy upper terrace level, so looking down out over towards the river. Beyond the symbolism of the structure itself and that idea of the temporary shelters that it is evoking and representing, even the colours of it have also, I understand, been carefully chosen to reflect earth, desert, fruit and sky. 
That's right. So the colour palette very much consciously and strategically and artistically chosen by the Hubba to reflect the palette of the items and the particular objects that Sukkot, the Jewish festival of harvest, is renowned for. And so the yellow and the green and the blue are very resonant of all those kind of symbols. And then again, embedded into the landscape. And one need only look at some of the beautiful pictures or the imagery that, that we've been able to showcase the, the structure with. And hopefully when people go down and visit it, they'll see as well that it just has this beautiful conversation with the surrounding landscape. And it has a softness and a sense of almost always being there. As you see the trees reflected back into it, you see the Yarra River reflected back into it. There's wattle behind it that picks up the yellow. And then when the sky happens to be blue in Melbourne, and today's not <laughs> such a great example, but when the sun is out and the blue of the sky is reflected back in the structure, as I said, it glistens there as a jewel in the middle of the city, which is just so magnificent. Suka, located in Birurungma, will be there until the 13th of December. By which stage, I'm guessing, Jess, that you're hoping by December that the Jewish Museum of Australia may be physically able to reopen its doors again? We're certainly hopeful. We're hopeful for ourselves and for all of our friends in the arts cultural space. We've actually made the decision at the museum, given how challenging this year has been, and I'm sure this is something that will be keenly felt by not just museums and galleries, but anyone really that has a public-facing space or organisation or business. The back and forth across reopening plans has been enormously impactful on us and on, on our small team. So the decision we made actually, and a confident decision, and a decision that we're happy with is that we'll see out the rest of 2020 energetically and dynamically in the digital realm. We've been doing some phenomenal work programming and activity in the virtual space and we'll reopen our doors excitedly and happily from January next year and then of course welcome visitors back from February with our major project for next year which is an exhibition and immersive experience that celebrates the very wonderful Merkamora. That is an exhibition that I cannot wait to see, to experience and to learn more about as well. The impact, the cultural significance of Merkamora on this city's food culture, artistic culture, collaborative culture, so much more is so significant. So that really will be a landmark and I imagine, given her work, a joyful exhibition which the museum can reopen. Absolutely. And again, you know, I think so timely for us also and for the city and for the country and we hope that by then we'll have people coming from not just across Melbourne and Victoria but interstate also a real moment of celebration for everybody and Merca and her artistry is so synonymous with as you say the sense of colour the sense of joy the boldness of her aesthetic which is synonymous with love and friendship and connection and community and it feels so perfectly timed for us. We'll open on Valentine's Day, open to the public on February the 14th next year. This is a project that was supposed to come to life in June this year, but was one of the many creative casualties of 2020. So never a happier Jewish museum than to be able to fling the doors open come next year and welcome people, hopefully in droves, to this wonderful Merkur exhibition we're creating at the moment. And before then, you can stroll down to Birurangmar until the 13th of December to see Zahava Ellenberg's Asuka, the temporary artwork down there. More information at www.jewishmuseum.com.au I've been chatting with the Director of the Jewish Museum of Australia, Jess Bram. Jess, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Thank you so much, Richard, for having me. A nice distraction from thinking of politics. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) All the best. Have a great day. 
My next guest has joined us on the line to talk about the Irish Film Festival. Going online this year, Dr Ender Murray is the festival director. Ender, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Richard, from a very wet and windy Sydney. It's a grey Melbourne here, so much of a muchness. But like many film festivals, yours has paused. I'm fairly certain that you would have normally been presenting your festival around May this year, put it on hold because of the pandemic, and now going entirely online. Yeah, that's correct. We were already um, for a festival in May. We had the T-shirts. We had 5,000 flyers. If you want any beer coasters, I've got a box of uh, flyers here for you. We were all ready to go and, of course, the pandemic. So we took a breather and now we're back bigger and better and raring to go. And we start off on the 19th, 19th to the 29th of November with the biggest program we've we've ever had. So lots of contemporary stories from Ireland. In terms of that program, given it's the biggest program that the festival has had to date, has the additional time to plan and present the festival allowed you to grow it? Or is it so large because you don't have the physical limitations of presenting physically in a cinema, that because it's online, is that what has enabled it to grow? Yeah, look, going through all of the rigmarole of setting up a screening platform, an out screening platform is in, in Memphis, Tennessee. The amount of work to add a couple of more films to the programme was not the same as if we were screening in physical cinemas. We also were able to go back and find some films which weren't available back in May and are available now. So that was a combination. Before we get into talking about the programme itself, I'm curious to know, given that you just mentioned the late postponement of the festival meant you already had T-shirts ready to go, you had drink posters, flyers and so forth. What kind of financial hit has the festival taken this year? Because I know that here in Melbourne, for example, the Melbourne International Comedy Festival having to cancel at the last moment was much more of a financial blow than for other festivals that may have had six months' notice before they decided to cancel, for example. Has it been damaging for the festival to have to postpone so rapidly earlier in the year? I think, as with a lot of arts in Australia, the uh, Irish Film Festival is very much a love job for the people involved. Okay, we do take a small fee. Probably the biggest impact was the fact that we had done a huge amount of work up until March, and we then had to stop. A lot of that work was for nothing, then we had to start again, you know, around August, September time for a small festival without a lot of resources to have to tackle the technical issue of setting up a streaming platform, marry it to our website and all online ticketing. That's a lot of stress. We did lose money, of course, but probably much more impact on in terms of the amount of hours that our very small and very dedicated team have had to put in. Well, you've now shown how strong that team is and how dedicated by pulling the program together for the festival, which, as we said, is now streaming online from the 19th to the 29th of November with its largest lineup ever. Let's talk about some of the films and also let's talk about how you select the films. As the festival director, what are you looking for in terms of programming? Something that speaks to Contemporary Island now? Something that represents the demographic change in Ireland or the, the cultural shift in 
Island over recent years, or do you just want films that tell a good story? No, telling stories is a bottom line, of course. But having been out of Ireland for 33 years myself, I'm spending 10 of those years in England and now here for 23, I'm always fascinated by the stories of migration. And I've been very lucky the last couple of years in that I've been able to go back every year to Galway Film Flat in July and I've been able to see the best of the mid-range Irish films when they're released in Galway and enjoy some of the Irish hospitality and visit the west coast of Ireland, which is a great thing to do in the middle of summer. But more importantly, I'm able to go back and I'm able to see what's happening in Ireland and take the pulse and talk to my family, talk to my friends and see how Ireland is changing. And Ireland has changed so much in the last 20 years. There have been so many social changes. There's been the marriage referendum way ahead of Australia. And then recently there was the Eighth Amendment referendum on abortion. There's just been so many changes and we're very interested. I'm fascinated by the migrant experience and how Ireland has changed and how Ireland is perceived by both expats here in Australia and also by Australians. And also the the place of of Ireland within Australia is also reflected in, in, in a lot of these stories. So Look, we're very good at telling stories. That's kind of a given that these have got to be good stories. But the reflecting of what's happening in Ireland is very important. And I suppose the other thing to add just would be the the situation in Northern Ireland after the Troubles and how that reconciliation is happening. In terms of some of the films that pick up on some of those themes you've mentioned, one of them I've already had the opportunity to preview and I'm going to watch a few more because I hope to interview a couple of the directors in a week or two's time. The documentary When Women Won, which is about that referendum on the Eighth Amendment to the Irish Constitution, which took place in, I believe, 2018, which resulted in a win for women's rights to access safe abortions. It's a beautifully made documentary. It's it's almost a piece of propaganda. It's slightly one-sided, but I think that's because of the people who commissioned the film. But it really does show, I think, powerfully and engagingly the great social shifts that have happened in Ireland in the last few decades. Yeah, it absolutely does. I'm looking at this film from a point of view of somebody who, you know, when I was in London in, in, the, in the early 80s and coming back to Ireland and having to go to the student union shop to buy contraceptives because in, uh, in the mid-80s in Ireland, it, it, it was illegal to buy contraceptives. And, and the social landscape has changed so much in the last 25 years. I think it is important to mark these changes. And yes, the documentary is a documentary that was made by people who were pro the change. So it's almost a celebration of that change. But I suppose I don't begrudge the celebration of those changes, given the state of the nation pre those changes and, and some of the, the, the dreadful things that happened in Ireland with, in terms of uh, women's reproduction rights and uh, uh, in the past. That's obviously showing a very contemporary Ireland. The, the flip side of that is one of the dramas, which is a historical drama set in Connemara in County Galway in 1845 when the Great Hunger has hit Ireland. Some people would be more familiar with the phrase the Great Famine or the Potato Famine, but not really appropriate to call it a famine given British involvement and interference 
stamps in Food in Ireland was one of the great reasons for uh, for the hunger. But this is a film monster, so a, a historical drama, and I understand spoken almost entirely in Gaelic. Yeah, that's correct. And there's quite a thriving film industry within Irish language in Ireland, and um, I think partly to do with the the, the fact that um, uh, TG Carr, the um, Irish language station, which which was set up about 15 years ago, is um, you know was commissioning um, work. Um, Irish is an official language of the European Union, so if you study Irish, you can get work in in uh, in Ireland and. Um, the, the Irish language, I would say, uh, possibly will, will never return to be um, spoken um, by every everybody as, as the national language of the country. However, um, there's a huge amount of, of Irish uh, spoken as uh, just part of, of day-to-day life. Um, uh, there's a lot of... Um, uh, what are called Gael Scullina for for young um, kindergarten through through Gaelic. So um, uh, I, I think there's uh, um, been a, a resurgence in um, in Gaelic, and and um, uh, you know as someone I've, I've got a reasonable amount of Gaelic myself, so um, I'm, I'm uh, really delighted to see, to see that happen. And um, the, the the film Arak, um is uh, it's just beautifully shot, beautiful, a very rich palette of, of, of colour, and um, uh, uses the landscape very well, and, 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 and again tells a story which is part of of, of Irish history. And as you say, uh, you know, through the, 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 the those dark times in the in the 1840s, um, uh, through. Food was was um, uh, exported out of Ireland while the, um, the, the 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 hunger was happening. So, in in many ways, this was one of the first. Um, I've heard this described by um, uh, Irish historians as one of the first examples where commerce took precedence over humanity, because um, the the, um, the the food exports were there to you know support the the the. Um, uh, the English economy, um, however, the, um, uh, the plight of, of the uh, almost two million Irish uh, who um, either uh, died or emigrated uh, was ignored. So um, a, 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 a good story and a good, a, a great film, um, but, but also with a, with a message underneath. Yeah. Um, some of the films I've yet to preview, but I'm looking forward to, to learning about and seeing. Uh, the contemporary drama Rialto, um, kind of set in uh, Dublin's Docklands and about a, uh, a man who finds himself in a same-sex relationship for the first time in his life. But then you've also got, I guess, the, the flip side of that. You've got uh, comedies like uh, Poster Boys, for example, uh, about somebody who has to... Uh, kind of, who goes... Essentially... It, it seems like a road movie with some of the, the familiar tropes that we'd expect from a road movie, but seen through a comedic lens. Yeah, true. So we're really um, happy to get uh, Rialto. Tom Vaughan Lola, who's the, the star, is um, a actor on a, very much on, um, on, on, a, on an upward trajectory. Um, uh, both himself and the writer, Marco Halloran, um, got um, Irish Film and TV Awards about three weeks ago. Tom as um, uh, Best Actor and Mark for, for the, the writing of um, Rialto. Um, I think it's, a, it's, it's quite an understated um, 
a film, um, but a, a, a film that that keeps up Mark O'Halloran's um, uh, tradition. Uh, he started way back with with uh, Adam and Paul, a kind of a Joycean um, journey across uh, Dublin in 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 the eighties. Um, but in, instead of, of um, uh, uh, the, the, the Joyce characters, you had two heroin addicts. Um, that, that was Adam and Paul. And then uh, Viva, uh, an uh, amazing film uh, set in, in Cuba, uh, which, which looked at um, uh, uh, transgender performers. And um, um, that, it, so Marco Halloran is, is a, a very uh, um, a prized writer um, and, and has a, a beautiful way of, of looking at the world. Um, and, and, and so we, yeah, I, I think uh, Rialto is 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 a, um, a, a quite a substantial film and tackles uh, uh, you know big issues. Um, but we we did go uh, very hard to find comedies, and um, Poster Boys is one of these um, charming little comedies. I think it might have been sponsored by the Irish Tourist Board. Um, the the um, uh, the guys go on a, a, um, a road trip around Ireland, but um, uh, some some lovely shots. And it's great to see um, films coming out of rural Ireland. Uh, so uh, Poster Boys is set in, in uh, starts off in Kilkenny, uh, Dark Lies the Island, another uh, twist, twisted black comedy um, set in, in Roscommon. Um, and um, of course, um, Arak Monster that we mentioned said is set in in Connemara. So you know, Ireland um, really making um, um, making good of those uh, locations for for which it's it's famous, and for you know, it, it going back to Game of Thrones, uh, you know, going to Ireland for 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 those for that scenery, but. Um, yeah, you know, also, also, kind of harking back to some of the, the early days of Irish cinema when uh, it, it, it was uh, used for for its um, um, be- beautiful environment. Uh, the Quiet Man is a film that comes to mind. Ryan's Daughter, kind of back in the days before Ireland had its own indigenous film industry. There's a lot to see in this year's uh, Irish Film Festival, the sixth Irish Film Festival, running from the 19th to the 29th of November. I'd hoped to go back to Ireland again this year, but because of the pandemic, that's not possible. So instead, I'll be immersing myself in as many of the films as possible. Tickets for the festival range from $10 to $15. You can get a pass for three films for $35 or access the entire festival program, of which we've only scratched the surface for $115. And you can purchase tickets and find out how to stream them from the comfort of your own home at www.irishfilmfestival.com.au. The festival running, as I said, from the 19th to the 29th of November. I've been chatting with the festival director of the Irish Film Festival, Dr Enda Murray. Enda, thank you so much for joining us here on Triple R today. Thanks a million, Richard. Best of luck. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the art, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 